The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, this Sunday, uh, Baltimore Bible Church welcomes uh, Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministry. Uh, Mike Gendron was a, a strong defender of his Catholic faith for over 35 years. In 1982, when he began reading the Bible for the first time, uh, he realized he was woefully deceived about life's most crucial and critical issue, what must I do to be saved? His Catholic teaching opposed the Bible on the doctrines of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, during Mike's spiritual journey, he realized that the Bible as the uh, inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, has to be the supreme authority in all matters of faith. And his crisis of faith ended when he repented of the Catholic teachings that opposed the scriptures and trusted Christ alone as his all-sufficient Savior. Uh, Mike left the Catholic Church in 1984, uh, began worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and uh, attended an independent Bible church in Dallas uh, 32 years ago. Uh, during Mike's uh, last semester at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, he and his wife, Jane, who's also here with us uh, today, began inviting Roman Catholics over to their home every Tuesday night to watch a gospel video and to answer questions. And within three months, uh, they witnessed 17 Catholics exchange their religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, soon after, they began inviting uh, those new converts back on Wednesday nights to be discipled in uh, the truth of God's word, and that's how his ministry began. Uh, the heart and mission of proclaiming the gospel ministry has been driven by Mike and Jane's uh, deep love and uh, compassion for uh, Roman Catholics. I've uh, gotten to know uh, Mike and Jane a little bit already. Uh, very grateful for them uh, being here uh, with us today. We'll also have an opportunity uh, following our service uh, today after the fellowship uh, meal uh, to return back here again, and uh, he'll teach a second session on how to share uh, your faith with uh, Roman Catholic friends and, and family members. So uh, we're looking forward to hearing uh, more from him uh, today. So uh, can we welcome Mike Gendron uh, to Baltimore Bible Church? Amen. Well, it is indeed a joy to be with you all this Sunday. We come together as the body of Christ to worship our exalted Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy it was to participate in the praise of your worship this morning. I bring you greetings from all the saints at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, where Tom Pennington is the pastor, and we've been their missionary now for some 25 years. Well, last month we celebrated the 505th anniversary of the Reformation, Yet many of our pastors have forgotten or dismissed the gospel truths that many of the reformers gave their lives defending. It is really heartbreaking to see that some are even saying that the Reformation was a mistake. A growing number of evangelicals are joining hands with the Roman Catholic Church in an attempt to reverse the Reformation and reunite all Christians together. They have jumped on the Pope's ecumenical bandwagon to help them build his global religion, and we know there will be a global religion as we study biblical eschatology. So where do you stand on this most important issue? It's my prayer that this message this afternoon will bring clarity to the gospel that was once black and white 500 years ago, but now many are painting gray. So questions that we will look to answer this afternoon, why was the Reformation necessary and what actually did it accomplish? We'll also look at what is Rome's strategy to reverse the Reformation, and they have a very effective strategy that appears to be working. And then how can you and I contend for the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hopefully, answers to these questions will better equip us to remain sanctified by the truth and to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. When you look at the history of the church, you see the ancient church in the first 600 years, that's when scripture was faithfully proclaimed. But then you have the medieval church over the next 900 years where scripture was hidden from the people, the dark ages, if you will. And then you have the Reformation church where God raised up the reformers, scripture was restored to the people, 
And now you have what we're in, the modern or even the postmodern church, where Scripture is often being ignored. The 900 years of the medieval church was called the Dark Ages because the Word of God was hidden from the people. On October 31st, 1517, 505 years ago, Roman Catholic priest Martin Luther defiantly nailed his 95 Thesis to protest the selling of God's forgiveness through indulgences. He was outraged that salvation was being sold like any other commodity in the marketplace. His 95 Thesis were a list of how the Roman Catholic Church needed to reform in order to be faithful to Scripture. Ever since God delivered me out of religious deception and religious bondage, Martin Luther has been one of my heroes. His single-mindedness and his unwavering fidelity to the truth of Scripture. If you know anything about church history, you know that Martin Luther was the flashpoint that caused the long, smoldering moral and doctrinal corruption of the Roman Catholic Church to suddenly break into fames. So do you look on All Saints Day... You wonder, was Martin Luther strategic in nailing his 95 Thesis on the church door on October 31st? Absolutely, because he knew the very next day on November 1st, Catholics were going to go in and they were going to venerate, which is a form of worship, they were going to venerate the relics of dead saints and they were going to confess to a priest. The Roman Catholic Church promised them a plenary indulgence if they would do this. A plenary indulgence is the forgiveness of all sins. And so you have 1,900 relics that were on display, relics of dead saints. This is still popular in Roman Catholic churches today. In fact, if you go to a Roman Catholic service, you will notice that the priest will actually bend over and kiss the altar. He's kissing a relic of a dead saint. Every, every, every Roman Catholic altar must include a relic. So the veneration of relics originated in paganism, and it's one of the many ungodly traditions that Catholics still practice today. This idolatry is part of the great deception that holds Catholics in religious deception. It was at 1521 at the Diet of Worms, Luther appeared before Charles V and the bishops of the church, and he was asked to recant. You can see his books laid out there, his writings on the table. He stated, unless I am convinced by Scripture, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Martin Luther remained steadfast against all opposition. He stood alone before the pope of the church and the Roman emperor. Boy, what a, what a mark of courage for all of us to stand firm today when the gospel is under such attack. Well, Luther would admit that he did not cause the Reformation. He gave all the credit to God in his word. He said, and I quote, All I have done is put forth, preach, and write the word of God. And apart from this, I have done nothing. The word has achieved everything. Luther knew what caused the Reformation. It was the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, preached by men of God in a language that people could understand. That's what caused the Reformation. And it was God's Word that was setting people free who were being held captive by religious deception. You remember the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, that we are to pray for those in opposition to the gospel, that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they could escape the snare of the devil who holds them captive to do his will. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the only way anyone can be set free from religious deception and bondage is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, he said, A true disciple of mine is one who abides in my word. Then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And that's what was happening in the Reformation. People were listening to the word of God. They were reading the word of God, and the truth was setting them free. Luther also exposed the papacy. Having discovered the truth of God's word, Martin Luther declared 
we are under the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist, I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that of Antichrist. And I agree with Martin Luther that the papacy has the spirit of Antichrist. However, I believe the office of the papacy, if we are in the season of the Lord's return, would be the office of the false prophet that will point the world to the Antichrist. Luther's writings expose many of the doctrinal errors of Rome after being set free from religious deception by the truth of God's word, Luther began exposing the errors that once held him captive, and those errors are still deceiving Roman Catholics today. Luther's bold courage and his unwillingness to compromise is a great model for all of us today. He said, and I quote, "...the preacher should not be silent. He should speak out candidly without regarding or sparing anyone." Let it strike whomever or whatever it will, end quote. He said, I, I bear upon me the malice of the whole world, the hatred of the emperor and the pope and all of their advisors. Luther stood alone. Well, Scripture was the focus of all the reformers. It was the ignorance of Scripture that made the Reformation necessary. It was the recovery of Scripture that made the Reformation possible And it was the power of Scripture that gave the Reformation its enduring impact. The common thread among all the Reformers was an undying commitment to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, God's inspired Word. They were willing to sacrifice everything, including their own lives, to get the Word of God into the hands of the people. God's Word was the true power and ultimate authority behind all they said and did. So why was the Reformation necessary? The Bible was not available to the people. The Roman Catholic Church had distorted the gospel and was under divine condemnation, as we see in Galatians 1, 6-9. They were preaching another gospel, and Paul said, let them be accursed, anyone who distorts the gospel. Catholic priests were false mediators who continued the work of redemption on an altar. We know in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church had also departed from the faith of the apostles to follow doctrines of demons. And this shouldn't surprise us because Paul warned us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, that in latter times, some would fall away from the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to list one of the doctrines forbidding people to marry. Well, before we were at Countryside Bible Church, we were attending Believer's Chapel. And one particular Sunday, there was a couple of nuns that came in, and they were easily identifiable. They were wearing their habits. And after the service, I went up to have conversation with them. I said, what brings you to our church today? And they said, we're taking a junior college course, and one of our assignments is to go out and find what other churches do, what other religions do, and to find out what they believe. And so they began asking me questions about what took place and what we believe as a church. And each time they asked a question, I turned in God's Word and gave them the answer. Now, this went on for about 15 minutes. Finally, one of the nuns said, How is it you know the Bible so well? Every time we ask you a question, you know right where the answer is. I said, well, I was once a Roman Catholic like you, and I never read the Bible, and so I was easily deceived, and I never want to be deceived again. Well, now they were ready to leave. (laughs) And I said, before you leave, can I ask you a question? Is it true that you're forbidden to marry? Yes, yes, we've taken a vow of celibacy. I said, did you happen to know that is a doctrine of demons? (gasps) They gasped. And so I turned to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I let them read it. They said, wow, we're going to have to check with our priest about this. Well, I said, when you check with your priest, make sure you get the answers from God's Word, just as I gave you the answers when you had questions. So Roman Catholicism distorted the gospel of grace The Reformation was necessary because the Catholic Church taught that you are saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, 
Christ plus other mediators, Scripture plus tradition, and glory was going to God as well as Mary and all the saints. The perversion of the gospel started when the Roman Catholic Church departed from the authority of Scripture. When you look at Reformation teaching, the five solas, sola scriptura, that is the content of salvation. Scripture alone is what we need to know in order to know how to be saved, but it is also our supreme authority in all matters of faith and truth. Sola gratia is the means of salvation. God saves us by grace alone, without any merit. Romans 11.6, I think, is a great verse. Paul said, if it is by grace, it is not of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Sola fide, the instrument of salvation. God saves through faith without works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that have set so many Roman Catholics free. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works that no man may boast. And solus Christus, Christ is the only mediator of salvation. Christ apart from Roman Catholic priests that were acting as mediators between the Roman Catholic people and God. Rome denied Christ as the only mediator because their priest dispensed salvation through the sacraments. Well, I think you would agree to reject any of these four solas is to negate the fifth sola and to rob Christ of his glory. Sola Deo Gloria, God alone, the triune God, is the provider of salvation, whereby God alone is glorified. The Reformers were dedicated to giving all the glory to God alone, as it is written in Jude, verse 25. To the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Well, the Reformers recovered the doctrine of justification. It was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. At the heart of the Reformation were these five key truths of biblical Christianity that have been, had been demolished by the Roman Catholic Church over that 900-year period when Scripture was hidden for, from the people. So we all need to be aware that these five pillars are once again in jeopardy of being demolished. We need to make sure we are standing firm on the truth of God's Word as our supreme authority in all matters of faith. The ecumenical movement is coming like a tidal wave over the professing church, and many Christians are being swept away from these eternal truths. Without them, the church has no foundation and no message to those who are perishing. May God help us all to defend these five solas and proclaim them for God's glory and his purpose. So what did the Reformation actually accomplish? Well, it returned the Bible to the people in their own language. You see the castle here in Wartburg, Germany. This is where Martin Luther hid out, where he translated the Bible into the German language for the people. The Reformation also reestablished the Word of God as the supreme authority for all matters of faith. It was during the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church elevated its ungodly tradition to be equal in authority to the Word of God. The Reformation also reestablished the Lord Jesus Christ as the only head of his church. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased the church with his own blood. How dare the Pope take the title head of the church from the Lord Jesus Christ? The Reformation also recovered the biblical doctrine of justification by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation was the reawakening to the fact that men can be saved by reading the Bible unaided by the church. Roman Catholicism teaches that the Bible is too difficult to understand, that you need to come to the priest and he will answer your questions for you. And that's why, as a Roman Catholic, I had a Bible, but it sat on my coffee table for 35 years collecting dust. 
I was discouraged from reading it. And when I opened it, I was confronted with the truth of God's word. So when we look at the doctrine of justification, Martin Luther said it is the very doctrine that that is a hinge that opens the gates of heaven. If you get the doctrine of justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. If you get justification wrong, you cannot be right with God. It is the most important doctrine that the Reformation reestablished. And what is the doctrine of justification? It declares the inflexible righteousness of God as the judge who must punish every sin that has ever been committed by everyone who has ever lived. God is a holy and righteous judge. He cannot let the guilty go unpunished. The only way condemned sinners can be justified is through faith and the sin-bearing, substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ alone, who satisfied divine justice. I, I don't want you to miss this. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for 35 years as a Roman Catholic. I knew that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That was history. When I found out Jesus died as my substitute, that he bore the sins and was immersed in the wrath of God for me and then gave me his righteousness, that was salvation. But the Roman Catholic Church does not teach the penal substitution of Christ. Catholics do not know that Jesus died as a substitute for those who put their trust in him. That's why this doctrine of justification is so important. I want to share with you the contrasting views of justification, comparing what the Bible teaches with what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Bible clearly says that justification is the change of one's legal status before God, whereby a condemned sinner has been acquitted and declared righteous. That's why you see a gavel coming down. It is a forensic doctrine. It's a courtroom whereby a guilty sinner stands before a holy and righteous judge, and because of his faith in Christ, he's no longer condemned, but he's now been acquitted. His legal status has been changed. But Rome says no. Justification changes the inner man, not his legal status. And I'm going to share with you paragraph numbers from the official authority of the Catholic Church, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So when you see these numbers, this is what the Catechism teaches. This is not Mike's opinion. This is the authority of the Catholic Church. The Bible teaches justification is instantaneous. When the gavel comes down, the legal status is changed. But Rome says no. Justification is a process It is the ongoing renewal of the interior man. Can you see how Roman Catholicism confuses sanctification with justification? The Roman Catholic Church says initial justification is by the sacrament of water baptism, paragraph 1992. The Bible says that justification is by faith in what God accomplished in Christ, Romans 5.1. Can a seven-day-old baby put his or her faith in anything? But the Roman Catholic Church teaches it's not the faith of the baby, it's the faith of the parents. We need to instruct Roman Catholics that God does not have any grandchildren. Each person must put their own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches justification is permanent, and is never lost by sin. The legal status of a justified man is as unchangeable as the righteousness of Christ. Oh, how I love to share Hebrews 10.14 with Roman Catholics. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. But once again, Rome says no. Justification is temporal. It can be lost by sin and regained through the sacrament of penance and good works. That's why on the screen you see two arrows, one going up and one going down. As Roman Catholics receive sacraments and do good works, their right standing before God increases. When they commit sin, their right standing before God decreases.
The Roman Catholic Church wants you to make sure you understand this. So at the Council of Trent, it stated, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, let him be anathema. Let him be condemned. This is one of over 100 anathemas by the Council of Trent that condemn you and I because we believe in the all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work of redemption. Oh, how I wished I could share a message like this with all the evangelical leaders that are calling for unity with the Catholic Church because they believe we share a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. Rome teaches final justification is for those who become righteous, paragraph 2016 and 2020 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Bible teaches justification is the imputation or the crediting of Christ's righteousness to those justified. But once again, Rome says, no, justification is the infusion of righteousness which renews the interior man. Again, denying the legal status, denying the legal change, focusing more on the inner man. My favorite verse in all the Bible has become 2 Corinthians 5.21. Oh, if only I'd heard that as a Roman Catholic. That's where we see the substitution of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I consider that the greatest exchange any human being could ever receive, could ever experience. Christ took all of my sin, all of my guilt. He was immersed in the wrath of God for me. And what did he give me in return? His perfect righteousness. And that righteousness is mine forever. The Bible teaches that justification is by grace apart from works. Christ's righteousness is given as a gift. We see that in Romans 5.17. Anyone who repents and believes in the Lord is given the righteousness of Christ. But once again, Rome says no. Justification must include good works. Rejustification must be merited by making satisfaction for sins through penance works of mercy, and prayer. Once again, the Council of Trent wants you to know, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Can you see why we can never have unity with the Roman Catholic religion? The Bible teaches that after justification, sins are no longer taken into account to be punished. Oh, I love what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21, that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Listen to this, not counting men's sins against them. Why doesn't God count our sins against us? They were all placed on Christ. Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. When I share this good news with Catholics, you know what they say? Oh, so all you have to do is believe in Jesus and then you can continue in sin? No, the grace that brought us salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright life. When I know that the sinless Son of God went to the cross to die as a substitute for me, I want to live my life pleasing to him for having been saved by his grace and mercy. Rome says all sins committed after justification, remember it's the baby who's justified at seven days old, all sins committed after justification will be punished either in purgatory or in hell. The Bible teaches God promises to glorify everyone he justifies because those justified can never be condemned. Don't you love the promise in Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we have the great promise in Romans 8.30. Those God justifies, he glorifies. 
But once again, Rome says no. God condemns to hell everyone who dies in mortal sin that was once justified by the sacrament of water baptism. I was on a cruise to Israel teaching all the saints as we went where the Lord Jesus walked, and there was a Roman Catholic priest on board. He was identifiable because of his collar. So I went up and engaged him with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we came down to this point. I asked him, do you believe a baby who was justified by water baptism can later on die in the state of mortal sin and go to hell? He said, yes, that's what we teach. I said, how do you reconcile that with Romans 8.30? Those God justifies, he glorifies. He scratched his head and said, you know, we just don't have an answer for that. Rather than submitting to the truth and the authority of God's word, repenting and believing what it says, we just don't have an answer for that. Well, Rome's doctrine of justification was and is diametrically opposed to the biblical doctrine of justification. One was revealed by God. The other was invented by man. One was based on the perfect, finished, all-sufficient work of Christ. The other on the imperfect works of sinful man. One offers divine assurance. The other offers only a false hope. Devoted ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ will not blur the lines between these antithetical teachings. We cannot paint gray what God has painted black and white. We must destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Well, just to share a little humor with you, here you see Martin Luther in front of the church door in Wittenberg. No, the door was fine. I was just fixing your theology. (laughs) And can you see now how much their theology needed to be fixed? Well, in 1545, Roman Catholic Church deliberately and dogmatically departed from the gospel of Jesus Christ at the Council of Trent. Now, for the previous 900 years, they were departing from the faith of the apostles, but it was at 1545 at this council that it was deliberate and dogmatic. Her apostasy is documented by over 100 infallible anathemas that condemn anyone who does not believe Rome's corruption of the gospel. The gospel also elevated religious tradition to be equal in authority to God's word. Anyone who does not submit to Scripture as the supreme authority for truth will be prone to deception. The council, by the way, also placed the Bible on the list of forbidden books. Now, why would a church who calls itself a Christian church forbid its people from having the very word of God in their possession? It's because the truth was setting captives free. They wanted to remove the very truth that was setting captives free. They went on to say, if you held a Bible in your possession, the church would not forgive you of your sins until you return the Bible to the church. This is Roman Catholicism. Well, after the Vatican's first attempt to reverse the Reformation, this is what Martin Luther said. Popish writers pretend that they've always taught what we now teach concerning faith and good works in that they are unjustly accused of the contrary. Thus the wolf puts on the sheepskin till he gains admission into the fold. And today the wolf is successfully gaining admission into the sheep's fold because some pastors are making the gospel so inclusive that anyone who names the name of Christ will be welcomed into the church. The Vatican's current strategy to reverse the Reformation is gaining strength. It's almost like a tidal wave sweeping across the professing church. It really all started on its decree of ecumenism at Vatican Council II in 1965. And then in 1994, Chuck Colson, along with Richard John Newhouse, 
established the first of what is called Evangelicals and Catholics Together Accords. Many evangelicals signed on believing, Chuck Colson, that we share a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is hard to believe, but in 1999, there was a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification between Catholics and Lutherans. You just saw how the Catholic Church diametrically opposes the biblical doctrine of justification. How could these Lutherans sign a unity accord stating that we agree on the doctrine? But then the most damaging unity accord has been the Manhattan Declaration in 2009. All of these unity accords are calling Catholics and evangelicals to be co-belligerents in the battle for the sanctity of life and the biblical meaning of marriage. But there's so much more at stake than winning the cultural wars. We're also fighting the age-old war against truth that is being waged by the powers of darkness that seek to undermine the gospel. And that's what all of these unity accords do. They undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you read the Manhattan Declaration, this hits you front and center. We are Christians, that is, Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals, who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesial differences to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in its fullness. The statement that Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Evangelicals share a common faith and a common commitment to the gospel's essential claims is utterly false. Yet over 640,000 evangelicals have signed the Manhattan Declaration, including, and I want to name some names here just so you'll know, Ravi Zacharias, Al Mohler, J.I. Packer, Johnny Erickson Tata, Danny Aiken, Randy Alcorn, Kay Author, Mark Bailey, former president of Dallas Seminary, Gary Bauer, James Dobson, Jack Graham, Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller, Richard Land, Josh McDowell, David Platt, plus a whole host of Roman Catholic right reverends and most reverends. This is heartbreaking. The Reformers died for the gospel. They stood alone, were brutally tortured and murdered, and we have evangelicals now saying that it was all a mistake. We need to join together, proclaim the gospel together. As Christians, we cannot be passive or indifferent towards any distortion of the gospel. There is not a more critical issue in the church today than guarding the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the rudder that must guide the church through stormy waters that have been stirred up by every wind of doctrine. Words of Paul in Ephesians 4.14. I want to share with you the gospel that the evangelicals are saying we have a common faith with, with Roman Catholics. In the Roman Catholic religion, salvation is by grace plus faith, and that faith can be the parents' faith, plus baptism, paragraph 1256 of the Catechism, plus the sacraments, they are necessary for salvation, plus the sacrifice of the Mass, plus purgatory, a place where Catholics believe they go to have their sins purged away, plus indulgences, the remission of temporal punishment for sin, plus good works. You saw that good works are necessary to be justified, plus they have to keep the law in order to be saved. Haven't they read Galatians 3, that attempting to keep the law places you under a curse for salvation? We we need to share James 2.10. If you were to keep the whole law perfectly, yet stumble at one part, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. This is the gospel evangelicals are signing unity accords with. Well, the false gospel of Rome rejects the supremacy of God's word. It rejects the sufficiency of God's son. It rejects the sovereignty of God's grace. We know that it is the Holy Spirit that brings forth life to those who are dead in their sin. 
Rome says no, it's the efficacious waters of baptism. The false gospel of Rome rejects the severity of God's punishment. We know those who die without Christ go to an eternal place of torment. Rome says no. If you commit lesser sins, you only go to purgatory. The false gospel of Rome rejects the security of God's children. The Roman Catholic Church denies the very promise of the gospel, which is eternal, everlasting life. Roman Catholics only have conditional life. That's because their salvation is not based on Christ alone, but it's based on what they must do in order to be saved. The Apostle Paul made it very clear, if only he knew 2,000 years ago what would be taking place today, but these scriptures are definitely needed. He said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. Note the five vivid contrasts here, all highlighted for you. This divine command is clearly and emphatically stated. Do not be unequally yoked in spiritual enterprises. And yet that's what all of these unity accords are doing, calling for people to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. God does not need us to be united with unbelievers to win cultural wars. Biblical history proves this point. Remember all the remarkable battles that God was victorious in with just a small remnant of his people? Now, if we stand alone and fight the cultural wars sanctified by the truth, God will get all the glory when those cultural wars are won. So those who oppose the Manhattan Declaration are slandered. We have called for people to take their name off this Manhattan Declaration and some of the people who have tried, this is the response they get from the director of the Manhattan Declaration. I quote, There are a number of ignorant, angry rabble-rousers who regularly lie about us to serve their small, twisted propagandas. Some are filled with hate for those who don't comply with their version of Christianity. These fools harm and hinder the gospel. This is words by Eric Tietzel the executive director of the Manhattan Declaration. He's a graduate of Wheaton College and president of the Manhattan Declaration. No, it's unity accords such as the Manhattan Declaration that put the gospel off limits to Roman Catholics throughout the world. Because if people believed what Eric Tietzel is saying, they would have no desire to witness to Roman Catholics because the declarations say they're already our brothers in Christ. They share a common gospel. So it's these unity accords that's putting the gospel off limits to 1.3 billion precious souls that need to hear it. Well, the Bible speaks of two kinds of unity. There is a biblical unity, which demonstrates a common faith in the gospel. It's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized by one spirit into one body, and then we are called to maintain the unity of the spirit, not to create unity. But then there is a false unity, and that's the work of Satan, who uses man's prideful ambitions and biblical ignorance to unite the world. In a sense, we're seeing the rebuilding of the religious tower of Babel. Rome has a very effective strategy for uniting all professing Christians, they're now urging separated brethren to come home to Holy Mother the Church for the fullness of salvation. Now, I would assume that all of you who are born of the Spirit of God already have the fullness of salvation. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We have the complete forgiveness of sin. We have the assurance of eternal life. We have a permanent right standing before God. But Rome says, no, until you come back for the Eucharist, you will not have the fullness of salvation. They used to call us heretics, but it's hard to seduce and woo people back when you call them names. So now we're called separated brethren. Another strategy is to redefine biblical terms to make them ambiguous and acceptable to all. If you read any of these unity accords, you're going to see there's some 
brilliant wordsmithing going on to make the words vague and agreeable for all to sign. Another strategy beguiled Protestants with Catholic mystics and contemplative spirituality. The most quoted Roman Catholic mystic today by Protestant pastors is Henry Nouwen. His desire was to show each person their individual way to God. Another strategy seduced highly visible evangelicals to promote Catholicism as a valid expression of Christianity. For many years, the Reformers were labeled heretics. They were persecuted and condemned to death, and their properties were confiscated by the Vatican. However, at Vatican Council II, all of a sudden, we're no longer heretics, but separated brethren. So I want to share with you some troubling statements by some of our evangelical leaders just to show you how effective the Roman Catholic religion has been in seducing our highly visible evangelicals to promote Catholicism as a valid expression of Christianity. 505 years ago, Protestants called the Pope Antichrist, and they were tortured and killed for proclaiming the gospel. Now many are calling him Holy Father. These statistics are alarming. A survey of 1,000 senior pastors from LifeWay Research revealed almost two-thirds of evangelical pastors say Pope Francis is their brother in Christ. More than one-third say they value the Pope's view on theology and that he has improved their view of the Roman Catholic Church. This is why we receive so much friendly fire from evangelicals. Oftentimes we get emails and texts and phone calls. Why don't you go after the Muslims? Why are you going after Catholics? Don't you know there are brothers and sisters in Christ? These stunning statistics are the tragic results of all the unity accords that we have seen. Most evangelicals do not know if the Roman Catholic Church represents a mission field or if there are brothers and sisters in Christ. By God's grace, we will continue to fight. We need to, because the gospel is at stake. I want to share with you some quotes by some highly visible evangelicals. Louis Palau, you know, before Pope Francis became Pope, you know, he being from Argentina, same country Louis Palau is from, Louis Palau used to take our gospel tracts down to South America in Spanish because he knew that Roman Catholics need to be evangelized. But now his friend has now been elevated to Pope, so he says that Pope Francis is a very Bible-centered and Jesus Christ-centered man. He's really centered on the pure gospel. He is a friend of evangelicals. This Pope denies the exclusivity of the gospel. He denies there is a hell. He is a universalist. He believes that everyone will be in heaven, even atheists, as long as they are sincere in their unbelief. How can Louis Palau say this? And then you have Rick Warren. He's called Pope Francis our Pope, and he's pushed the Jesuit agenda for religious unity. Rick Warren is the most well-known Southern Baptist pastor, and he actually wrote a Catholic version of The Purpose Driven Life. By the way, if you read that purpose-driven life, you will see he presented a false and fatal gospel. He left out three of the most important essentials of the gospel that all begin with an R. He left out the righteousness of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the need for repentance. But he said, pray this prayer and welcome to the family of God. And then you have some disturbing quotes. Robert Jeffress pastor of First Baptist of Dallas. You may know him from Fox News. He's the go-to pastor. He said the Pope was a, speaking of Pope Benedict, the Pope was a wonderful, dedicated Christian man, and we celebrate the ministry he's had. Well, I've done conferences with Robert Jeffers. I have a personal relationship with him. I immediately sent an email to him. This actually appeared on an interview on Christian television. I said, Robert, how can you promote the ministry of a false prophet who shuts the gates of heaven to those who want to enter with a false and fatal gospel? 
He responded and said, Mike, whenever I'm in public ministry, I cannot bash Catholicism. And I wrote back and said, that wasn't my question. You could have told the truth, which you chose not to do. Or you could have remained neutral, which you chose not to do. Or you could have misled and deceived people by asking them to celebrate the ministry of a false prophet. Well, he didn't respond to me after that. But then we have another very disturbing quote by Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Convention Seminary. Pope Benedict, he said, was one of the most brilliant theological minds of our time. This is what Al Mohler said in a very troubling interview with a Roman Catholic archbishop by the name of Charles Chaput. Mohler is praising a pope who is under divine condemnation for twisting and distorting the gospel. This is the very pope that assembled the catechism of the Catholic Church. What impact do you believe followers of Al Mohler had? What impact did Al Mohler have on his followers and his students? One of the most brilliant theological minds isn't theology the study of God? The Roman Catholic Church has another Jesus that comes back at the beck and call of a priest to continue the work of redemption on an altar. This is very troubling. Was the Reformation a mistake? A pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area believes it was. He said, and I quote, the rift that occurred between Catholics and Protestants 500 years ago is theological pettiness. We'll have plenty of time in heaven to figure out who was right about purgatory and Mary. John Paul, Pope John Paul, was a man of God whom all Christians should admire, thank, and emulate. Shortly after this, he invited a Roman Catholic apologist in to equip the church on Roman Catholic theology. This man is a graduate of um, Dallas Theological Seminary. This is what we're up against. This is how the gospel's being distorted and, and blurred and compromised. I can only think of Hugh Latimer's last words to his companion as they were being burned at the stake. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace, as I trust, shall never be put out. Well, many are attempting to put this candle out today. Can you see why we need to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints? Well, there is a warning. Those who embrace, those who embrace false teachers without, those who embrace false teachers without challenging their errors leave their own convictions and beliefs open to question. We will all be held accountable for the souls who are misled by our unwillingness to contend for the faith. And I just uh, thank the Lord for John MacArthur and his clarion voice. He stood very firm against all these unity accords. He renounced them. He said, in the long war on the truth, the most formidable, relentless, and deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. It is an apostate, corrupt, heretical, false Christianity. It is an affront to the kingdom of Satan. We need, no more, we need more clarion voices. The gospel is under attack like never before. We need to all defend the glory and honor of our great God and Savior by exposing the evil deeds of darkness as the Apostle Paul exhorted us to do in Ephesians 5.11. Well, I hope you can see that Catholics and Christians can never be united because we are divided on the essentials of the gospel. We are divided on how one is born again. Rome says it's through water baptism. We know it's the Spirit of God, according to the Bible. We're divided on how one is justified. You've seen how Rome is diametrically opposed to biblical justification. We're divided on how we're purified, purified of sin. Rome says it's the fires of purgatory. The Bible says it's the precious blood of Jesus. We're divided on who mediates between God and man. The Bible says there is one, God's perfect man and man's perfect God. 
Rome says, no, you can go through our priest, you can go through Mary. We're divided on the sufficiency and the necessity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're divided on the path to paradise. If you know doctrine, you're going to know division, and when there is no doctrine, there is no division, and that's what these ecumenical people are trying to do, suppress doctrinal truth so that we can all come together and sing Kumbaya. I hope you would all agree that divine division and truth is infinitely better than satanic unity and error. Ecumenical unity can only be pursued by compromising the gospel and being disobedient to Almighty God. We must contend for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. Ecumenism is an outright rejection of our Lord's desire for His church to be sanctified by the truth. Remember, we have been called out of the world, a people for God's own possession, sanctified by truth. We must remain that way. Martin Luther, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the devil is that, at that moment, moment attacking, I am not professing Christ. Wherever the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. So what must we do hearing a message such as this? Remain sanctified by the truth? Enlist in the Lord's army to fight the good fight of faith? Some of you might be AWOL. Some of, you, some of you might know others that are absent without leave. It's time to report back to the commander-in-chief because there is a battle going on for the souls of men, and it's a battle that ultimately lies between the truth of God's Word and the lies of the devil. It's only going to get worse, as we know from reading the Scriptures. We need to test everything with God's Word to be good Bereans. Reject anything that's false. We need to stand firm Contend earnestly for the faith, not passively, not whenever we feel like it, earnestly. We can never, ever let a lie of the devil go unabated. We need to exhort and reprove with divine authority. We have at our disposal the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God. We can stand up for the truth. What's at stake if we don't? the glory and honor of our great God and Savior, the sanctity of His church, the exclusivity of His gospel, and ultimately the eternal destiny of those who are being deceived. We need to evangelize those who are lost in religion. I just want to quickly share a couple of resources. Because of this ecumenical unity that's invading the church and overcoming the church, I wrote a book called Contending for the Gospel, it's a book that will equip you and encourage you to fight the good fight of faith. Preparing for Eternity. If you know Roman Catholics, this is an excellent discipleship tool to not only show them the contrast between what the Bible teaches on salvation and what the Catholic Church teaches. It's an excellent book for you to know the scriptures to use. We really believe in literature evangelism. Wherever we go, we're sowing the seed of God's imperishable word. There's a promise that when they fall on fertile soil, there will be growth, there will be new life. So we like to give these away whenever we engage people. As we verbally give the gospel, we want to leave the gospel behind in print, printed form. So what do we do? We evangelize the lost and we contend earnestly for the faith. Do you realize those are two things that we can do right now that there will be no need to do in heaven? Everybody will be believers in heaven. Everybody will be believing the same faith. And so let's spend our time doing the two things now that we can't do in heaven. Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of grace that speaks of his all-sufficient work and his finished work of redemption. Father, we thank you for our, your word, which is a lamp unto our feet that gives us instructions on what to do in these times of great apostasy. Help us, Father, to be bold and courageous. Help us to stand firmly on the truth of God's word. 
Help us to be faithful to the Great Commission. And Father, I pray if there be anyone here this morning or this afternoon that is still outside of Christ, that is still trusting in what they must do in order to save themselves, might you grant them repentance so they could put all of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this for the glory of Christ and in the power of his name. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.